So collaboration, Keith, by its very definition, needs trust between the two collaborating parties. My question to you is, what are the tools and techniques you provide to enable this collaboration? So I'll give you two answers to that. I'll try and make them quick because there's a lot to talk about here. There's a theory and then there's the tools. Mm -hmm. So the, the theory of human interaction management that I wrote about in my first book mm -hmm. sets out five principles. And the um, concept is that if you want successful collaboration, you need to think about all those five principles when you're setting up a project or some kind of venture or initiative. So the first one is, uh, I call it commit, and that's about everybody knowing what their role is, what their responsibilities are. They have to know what other people's roles and responsibilities are, and they have to accept those responsibilities. The second one is about communication, and that's about having messaging and um, sending information to one another in, in a way that's purposeful, not just exchanging information for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. The third one is about contributions. This is about recognizing the different contributions that different kinds of people make, and some of which may be as simple as making an introduction to someone or having an idea or helping facilitate a meeting. These are all important contributions, mm -hmm. and they need to be recognized and, and rewarded in some way, not necessarily financially. The fourth one I call calculate, and that's about using your time well. So focusing on your goals, not just using time for the sake of it, not just working for a task list. Mm -hmm. And the fifth one is about change, is about recognizing that change is happening all the time around you and you need to adjust your plan. So they're the five C's of collaboration, commit, communicate, contribute, calculate, change. Then there's tools. Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a vodcast and podcast platform that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you are new to our channel, please consider subscribing to it and hit the bell icon so that you never miss an update. Our episodes go live at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. daily. I'm Ashutosh Garg, your host, and I have with me today a multifaceted individual from the UK, Keith Harrison Broninsky. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ashutosh. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Keith is the, found, is the founder of Collaboration Tools Limited. He's the project lead in Stake It Back. He's an author, speaker, and a technology and business consultant. Uh, he's an author, and a lot of you know I'm very partial to authors. So he's written books on human interactions and super communities. And most interestingly, he's released six jazz, classical, and traditional folk albums. So Keith, uh, tell me, you know, let's first talk about Collaboration Tools Limited and stake it back. Tell me about these ventures. Collaboration Tools Limited is a vehicle for building technology and explaining the ideas that I've been developing over a very long period, over about 30 years. And these ideas all start with the insight that I gained through the very beginning of my career that collaboration was everywhere in society, but it was not done in any kind of structured or formal way. So some people are very good at it. Naturally, they, are, they understand it and they understand the different pieces of what needs to happen in order to make effective collaboration. Others don't. And so they don't know why things go wrong. And in particular, a lot of project work, a lot of semi-structured work, um, a lot of work that involves governments, that involves interactions between governments and corporations and the third sector. Mm -hmm. There's enormous amount of collaboration, but 
without a theory, it is often prone to failure. So that's the, the basis of the ideas I've been developing and collaboration tools has been a way of sharing those ideas through books and speaking, but also through building technology tools associated with collaboration. So uh, Keith, for our viewers and listeners, can you uh, help me understand this with maybe an, uh, an example or an anecdote? Well, the area where I learned most about how you could transform the world through collaboration was in healthcare. For many years after writing my book, I was using examples that I'd written about in the book and examples that people brought to me um, from all sorts of area of, of government and industry where they knew that collaboration was important, but they, they didn't really see it as central. But in healthcare, people know it's central. And that's because if you have anything more than a very simple condition, then lots of different organizations and individuals need to collaborate around your care. They, are, they form a support network in a way. And I was approached by the UK National Health Service to help them do something about innovation because they recognized that there were a lot of innovations happening, but they weren't being taken up. They weren't being replicated elsewhere in the health service. And part of the reason for that is that the innovations were um, created by often a single individual, but they did so by collaborating. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing in that collaboration that introduced the innovation was hard for other people to understand, hard for them even to see. Mm -hmm. So we built a system, a web platform actually, that helped people see the collaboration that had gone on in the initial introduction, the innovation, and that allowed other people to replicate it. So that was one thing. But what I learned from working with a lot of innovators, so I worked with um, hundreds of innovators all across the UK of different types in healthcare. The most important and influential and transformational innovations were where there was not only collaboration during introduction of the innovation among the healthcare services, but there was also collaboration as part of the innovation. The innovation was about making healthcare more collaborative. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot, often what would happen is that people would take a, a procedure that had originally been medical and they would extend it to include wraparound care from the community. And, and that was what made a huge transformation in people's lives. So having this wraparound care, having a support network that was beyond professionals that went out into their neighborhood, their friends, their family, the, the people that they lived with and among, that is hugely important. So, so for me, that was the example Amazing. of collaboration that's Amazing. very exciting. Amazing. So collaboration, Keith, by its very definition, needs trust between the two collaborating parties. My question to you is, what are the tools and techniques you provide to enable this collaboration? So I'll give you two answers to that. I'll try and make them quick, so there's a lot to talk about here. There's a theory, and then there's the tools. Mm -hmm. So the, the theory of human interaction management that I wrote about in my first book mm -hmm. sets out five principles. And the um, concept is that if you want successful collaboration, you need to think about all those five principles when you're setting up a project or some kind of venture or initiative. So the first one is, uh, I call it commit, and that's about everybody knowing what their role is, what their responsibilities are. They have to know what other people's roles and responsibilities are, and they have to accept those responsibilities. The second one is about communication, and that's about having messaging and um, 
sending information to one another in, in a way that's purposeful, not just exchanging information for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. The third one is about contributions. This is about recognizing the different contributions that different kinds of people make, and some of which may be as simple as making an introduction to someone or having an idea or helping facilitate a meeting. These are all important contributions, mm -hmm. and they need to be recognized and, and rewarded in some way, not necessarily financially. The fourth one I call calculate, and that's about using your time well, so focusing on your goals, not just using time for the sake of it, not just working for task list. Mm -hmm. And the fifth one is about change, is about recognizing that change is happening all the time around you and you need to adjust your plans. So they're the five C's of collaboration, commit, communicate, contribute, calculate, and change. Then there's tools. What I found when I was helping organizations adopt these five C's was that it would go really well while I was there. And then I would go away, do something else, and they would slip back to the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And that's because those old ways are ingrained in a system. Kind of, the, the, There's a whole way of working there, but everybody's used to the whole world is used to it, and all the organizations around me used to it. So to change that, you need tools. And this is where my company has been building tools for many years, and now they are coming together into an open source platform that I call the Internet of Communities. And... And that relates directly to your question, Ashtosh, because you asked about trust. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the internet communities is about trust in data, trust in uses of that data, particularly AI, mm -hmm. the way that we extrapolate and analyze from that data, mm -hmm. and trust in each other. Because if we have control over our data, we can share bits of it with each other in a controlled way, particularly about those things that really matter, like the way we interact with the people around us. And, and that builds trust personally. So. Those tools not only help you collaborate better, but they help build trust in data, in AI, and in each other. Very interesting. And uh, again, you know, the five C's of collaboration that you just told me about, but there can be challenges uh, and there can be, which could lead to issues between collaborators. So tell me, based on your research, what are some of the significant challenges in collaboration? And how do you how what what tools can we adopt to untangle the, the 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 challenging issues? So what I found many times is that everybody you deal with recognizes the importance of collaboration. They want to do it better. They like the techniques. They think the techniques are common sense. Mm. They they don't even think it's anything very difficult to understand because it isn't. It is just common sense, really. Just um, formulated in a way that people can think about clearly. The challenges are that you're not going into a new environment. You're going into an environment where lots of people have done lots of things already. And often they've created systems, they've started projects, and the approach to collaboration I'm recommending would mean recognizing that they'd done some of those things mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't going to succeed. And that's a really big issue for people. It's especially in government, um, acknowledging that they've spent government money on something which wasn't going to succeed, probably would never have succeeded. Mm -hmm. That's a career problem. Outside government, you will have people in, say, a community environment where they have built tools for the community, mm. uh, websites and so on. These websites are not useful often in a, in a long term if you adopt these more um, theoretically sound approaches, these which are actually cheaper and, and easier. 
they, they make all that stuff unnecessary. So a lot of people who've built websites and perhaps making a bit of a living off those websites, they have an income and they are really threatened by a way that will sweep all that away. And it'll make life better for everyone else, but for them, it takes away their income. So that's a challenge and it needs to be handled by the community, by the organization in a very sensitive, very open, very inclusive way. Very interesting. So let's move on and let's talk about stake it back. When I was reading about you, you said Stake It Back is a disruptive mechanism for funding small businesses, including projects that benefit society. Can you help me understand this with an example? Sure. So at the moment, the amount of money invested in global capital markets is somewhere around $178 trillion. That's the amount of money we know about. Of course, there's a lot of money that we don't know about this floating around in cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. But let's uh, just think about that. Now, of that money, a proportion is invested in what they call ESG, environmental, social and governance investments, mm-hmm. and about 16%. Mm-hmm. But most people in the industry recognise that a lot of that is what they call greenwashing. It's not really invested in anything that's actually doing any good for society. It's, it's kind of labelled as that, but it's not really doing any good. The proportion that's invested in something that's contributing to society, changing society for the better, mm-hmm was um, estimated in 2019 as 0.28%. So a tiny, tiny fraction of the world's global capital is going into things that make the world better. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's not what people want. I think people who have capital would like to see invested in things that make money, yes, but also make the world better. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and, and I actually think corporations too, would, if they could achieve that, if they could um, expand and, and grow and diversify in ways that make the world better, they would welcome that. So I think there's a big appetite for using money in that way. The trouble is, it's very difficult because the only way to do that is what they call impact investment. And impact investment has just lifted and shifted old style investment it's taken a model that was developed for institutional investments and um, risky equity investments and it's just moved into the social space and it's moved with it a whole bunch of um, regulations and other baggage around the management of risk that means it's very expensive to invest in social good. Um, one estimate I was given was that if you put $50 million into a, a social impact bond, $25 million will go on administration. Wow. So it's crazy, insane, and unsustainable, and not what the planet needs. Mm-hmm. So we need a better, simpler way for the world's global capital to flow into doing good things for the world. Right. And that's what's taking back. It's, it's it's not an investment in the usual way. It's more of a commercial arrangement between the investor and a small project, which could be a, a, a social enterprise. It could be a community project. Um, it could be larger. But the nature of the arrangement is very simple. The um, person organization with money says, I will give you so much money. And in exchange, I want you to deliver to some targets. So the project might say, uh, buy some electric bicycles, get people to use them. It might um, dig a well, it might um, build a flood defense. And then that, if it's structured as a social enterprise, will be profitable. And so the arrangement is that when that target's met, the person with the money will get their money back, plus a bit extra. And usually if you do the sums, they can do better from that arrangement than from investing in the equity market. So it's a win-win. And the, the trick, the little trick is that there's no intermediary and the risk stays with the investor. So 
um, they acknowledge that the project might not deliver its target. And if, in fact, it probably will, because everyone wants it to, and why would it not? Mm -hmm. But they accept that risk, and that gets rid of all that administration burden. Let's take it back. Very interesting. So, you know, you've been working with people across generations, ages, whatever, on collaboration. Uh, this is the world of the millennials and the Gen Zs. I wanted to ask you, what are your views on how easy or difficult is a collaborative working style for the millennials and the Gen Zs? It's much easier for them. They are naturally collaborative and they operated in that way almost uh, since childhood. Um, they they have a different mindset, and this is why you're asking the question. Of course, Ashraf, you know this. You know they think in that way, and um, they're not so defensive. That's what it is. They have an instinctive understanding that if you're open about what you want to do, if you open the kimono, is what we would have said, perhaps in our generation, um, they don't have. They never close the kimono. The kimono is open almost since birth, and so for them, this is just uh, meat and drinks. It's normal operations it's, and i think what they've lacked is just some explanation of why what they're doing works mm. very interesting you know my own experience has been that the millennials and the gen z start from a position of trust hmm. my generation people would start from a position of mistrust and let me see what is he trying to extract from me or vice versa you know so yeah. that's fascinating so keith let's now move on to your books uh, you've got two books, Human Interactions and Super Communities. Tell me about both these books. Okay, so Human Interactions was um, my first book, and that was about this theory of collaboration that we discussed before. And that um, set out the ideas, but it didn't set out a methodology for using the ideas. And after that book, I was given the opportunity to speak widely across the world. I did a lot of keynotes and mm -hmm. I was approached by a lot of organizations. So then I was able to start developing methodology. And, and that's what led me to work with organizations like the National Health Service. And actually, I contributed to a lot of other books along the way. So I, through writing as part of other books, uh, then I was able to formulate this methodology. What I found was that the place where we need this most, the place where it, we can use it as a global society most effectively is in the interactions between communities and um, governments and corporations, that we can empower communities through collaboration, especially if we bring in um, a holistic notion of wellness and understanding that communities can support their members in becoming well, not just physically and mentally, but in every aspect of their life, the, to their safety, the way they get around, the way they um, are educated, the way they have access to work, and, and all the, and these things are many more that um, communities can provide. And especially if we bring that together with a stake it back notion of how to finance all these good things, then communities can take ownership of their resources. I separate their resources into their capitals, their, their, what, they get, what they're given almost by virtue of where they are and who they are, which is their natural capitals, their industrial capitals, their social organizations. And then the assets they build using those. They can use the capitals to build the assets. They can use the assets to increase the wellness of their members. And then as their wellness improves, their members will start helping build more assets, help, they'll help others, they'll help sustain the capitals. There's a, a lot of virtuous circles in there. And, that led to my second book. That was my, my second book of my own name, which is Super Communities. And Super Communities is 
a theory, just like my first book was a theory. It's a theory of how we can transform global society by building stronger communities that could sustain themselves. And, and it's moving the emphasis and the responsibility for global transformation away from governments, away from corporations, mm. down to communities, which could be geographical, often are, but not always. There can be communities, for example, of displaced people, or mm. communities of people with disabilities, or communities of culture or language. And and the internet communities I mentioned before mm. is is the project I'm working on now, is the set is the technology tools, brings together everything I've been doing all these years into a platform, an open source platform that supports the super communities approach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, super communities, by its very definition, needs a borderless world. But most of the borders seem to be going up in our world again. I'd love to get your perspective on this. We do seem in some ways to be going backwards. Um, It's very hard to really get perspective on that, isn't it? Uh, One of the things I found when I was thinking about and writing my book mm-hmm. is that to get any real understanding of um, things like um, econo- economic issues that affect communities, you need to look at the grand sweep of history. I, I, in my book, I go back to the Bronze Age and I look at economic mechanisms that were developed then, many of which are more effective than the ones we have now. Mm. And I think we have to take that perspective on the borders that are emerging in the world at the moment. I think we're, we're too close to it to really see what, what is going to happen, and particularly with relations between America, China, and Russia, I think this is something that will play out over the, not over the next 10 years, it'll play out over the next 100, 200 years. And we may actually, over the long term, be moving to a much more open society. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that things like climate crisis, which are such a, a terrible existential threat mm. and affecting so many people on a daily basis, in the long term, will will be like in a sci- in a science fiction film when the aliens attack. Everyone forgets about national boundaries and forgets about political issues. Uh, they all pull together yeah. to deal with the aliens, yeah. and that's climate crisis. That's in- inequality is like that too. And uh, what what's happening with global capital is like that. All, all these things are like an alien attack, and they may well pull the world together in the end. That's my belief. Very interesting. So, Keith, I'm now going to move to the last segment of our conversation. There are some questions for you personally. You know, for, for a person who's been a successful author, who's building such amazing uh, institutions for collaboration, what are some of the core values you believe? Well, I grew up in a community, a very strong, closely knit community, and I live in one now. Um, I'm a family man. I, my experiences of the things I love most, like like not only my family, but the countryside, but the music you mentioned before. For me, these are very much connected with um, close relationships, community relationships, supportive relationships. And that's enormously uh, valuable. It really um, makes you feel life is worthwhile. It gives you joy in your life. And and that's a natural human way to be. I think a lot of people, sadly, don't have that. They they feel that they perhaps had that once when they were a child or um, they they know it's the way they would like to live but they can't get to it so if you're asking what my values are what i really think is that we should all be striving for that we should be striving to create it for ourselves and the people around us mm-hmm. and that we should try and be like that at work just in the, if we have a certain way of being when we're at home and 
I'm sure, Ashton, you you're very much um, like like me about family and so on. And and you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are, aren't they? They they feel very strongly about their their work, their their home life. But when they go to work, everything changes, and suddenly they're in this world. A bit like you were saying before about how there was no trust within the workplace. Got suddenly, it. all that everything changes. And that, so we shouldn't change. We should be the same at work as we are at home. Mm. That, that's my so you know I forgot to ask you a question on your music. And I know that's an important part of your life. I mean, six jazz, classical, and traditional folk al albums. So tell me a little bit about your music. Well, I've always been on um, tent hooks as to whether to change to a musical career. And mm -hmm. I had a couple of moments where I could easily have done that. When I first started writing classical music, I was invited to write more, to go on tour with an orchestra. And, um, and that would have sent me into a different career mm -hmm. and I could have done that with jazz as well at some points but mm -hmm. I always felt that as uh, much as I love playing music I love working with musicians and mm -hmm. um, it's you know it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to do for anybody but I, there are lots of musicians in the world and these ideas that we've been talking about today I didn't feel there were other people that were going to take them forward unless I did so I, I felt I had to really pursue that as my career but music has always been there and I've, I've worked with so many different kinds of musicians often through engaging with very um amazing internationally famous musicians that happen to live in my local area and working with them uh, on all sorts of different projects so I, i've been very blessed i've had all these wonderful musical experiences fabulous i mean i can't imagine what a music group would be without collaboration well, there you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my, my last <laughs> question to you now, uh, Keith. Um, and this is a question on failure. You know, I've often said that from the part of the world that I come, parents don't tell children it's okay to fail. You know, we're always taught first in class, head of the line, etc., etc. And yet we keep failing. Uh, my question to you is, what have been some of your learnings from some of your mistakes? It's a great question, and and really, it should be you answering. Because you're the one with written a book on failure. Uh. <laughs> but I, I've failed many times, and I've often wondered why there's no word in the English language for turning failure into opportunity. Correct. There should be a word, and that's how you should approach failure. And you should ask yourself, how is this going in the end? to be something I am glad about, to be something I look back on and think I'm so pleased that happened because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have known this. I wouldn't have done that. Mm. I wouldn't have met that person. And that's how I've seen all the failures I've encountered. And um, just, I think they are a natural, inevitable part of growth. And, and one has to feel that. But I would defer to you, Ashtosh, because you're the expert on failures. So. <laughs> well, not that you've ever failed. You sound like you've not well, been an issue. All the person. time, I mean. Can you imagine? I must have failed so much that I've got a, I've got a whole book written on failure. <laughs> so, but thank you so much. You know, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. I've just loved our conversation on collaboration. I've just loved what you're doing with Stake It Back. And, you know, what an amazing kind of life you're leading with so many different things that you do all the time. Thank you again for spending time with me. Thank you for inviting me, Tosh. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. 
do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.